Would you please join me in standing out of gladness that Christ is going to speak to you this morning through His Word and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 17. If you don't have a Bible, you can use one of the chairback Bibles in front of you and you'll find this morning's text on page 876. Uh, This morning we want to look at the first 10 verses of Luke chapter 17 and they are 10 verses that have long vexed scholars as to whether or not there's any connection between everything that we're going to look at this morning. Because on a simple and speedy uh, reading of the text, it seems like there's no unity. There's no, there's no connection in the teachings that Christ has before us. Many people seem to think that Luke just pulled these random teachings of Jesus and just happened to stick them together at the beginning of chapter 17. But as I, I read the text, maybe you can see for yourself and ask for yourself if there is indeed any connection, if there's any link and unity in the lessons that Jesus has for us this morning. And so let me do get us going by reading our first 10 verses of chapter 17, and then I want to pray for God to bless our study, and we will begin. So let us hear now as Christ is speaking to us through his word. And Jesus said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep, say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. And Redeemer Church, what do we believe about God's Word? The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning needing the life that is found in your Word, and we are grateful that it not only directs us in how we might know your Son, Jesus Christ, but it directs us in how we might live in Him. So as we come to these words of application from our Savior, we ask that you would indeed unite our hearts together as one body that we might be able to respond through the work of the Spirit appropriately and rightly with repentance and faith to our Lord's instruction. Help us to hear with hearts of eagerness. Illuminate our minds that we might be able to understand this truth. Help me to preach, as your word says I must, with courage and with clarity always aware that this might be the last sermon that I preach. Let us all be aware that this might be the last sermon that we hear. So give us earnestness and diligence, we pray this morning. As you speak to us, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. 
It was in 1938 that a German theologian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer sat down in his sister's house at a desk in one of her rooms to put down on paper his thoughts on life in Jesus Christ. In many ways, they represented the putting down to paper lectures that he had given at his seminary in the previous few years, because of just about 18 months prior, the Gestapo, Hitler's secret military force, had shut down Bonhoeffer's seminary at Finkenwalde, and it was a seminary experience in which Bonhoeffer was trying to create an atmosphere in which its students and professors could be joyfully and consistently faithful to all of what Jesus says in the Gospels about how Christians should live together. And after just about, I think it was six weeks or so of writing that book, it eventually was sent off to the press and it became something of a classic in 20th century spirituality. And many of you may have read it before. It's the title, Life Together. And what we come to this morning in our text at the beginning of Luke chapter 17 is Jesus' instruction to his disciples, to us as a church body, on life together. And it's important for us to remember, even as we are rapidly approaching, faster than you might realize, the end of this gospel story, uh, where we are in the gospel story, because it was some four months ago, all the way back on Sunday, July 1st, that we were looking at the story of Jesus Christ at the end of Luke chapter 9. And there was a paradigmatic moment in Luke's gospel when Jesus, we're told, sets his face to go to Jerusalem. And so since the end of chapter 9, last four months or so, the last seven chapters or so, what we've seen Jesus do is ever more closely and forcefully going on his way to Jerusalem, where his final mission, of course, is a destiny date with death. And along the way, he is consistently doing two things in his instruction. Uh, what we've seen is he's most often either rebuking or correcting the self-righteousness of the religious leaders of his day, or he's preparing his merry band of brothers, these 12 disciples, for what life must look like after he departs. He's preparing them for what's going to happen in Jerusalem and how they ought to live after that happens. And for the last two chapters, if you've been with us in recent weeks, Jesus has been on something we said last week of a parabolic onslaught against the Pharisees. And it's been a while since he's been directly devoting his attention to the disciples. And that's what he's going to do in our text this morning. He's going to turn, for the first time after a while, to speak directly to his disciples. And if you wanted to summarize Jesus' instruction this morning in our ten verses, you could actually rightly say, based on the last couple of chapters, don't be like the Pharisees. What they do, don't do. But if you want to summarize it a little bit differently, uh, what you could say is what Jesus is doing in this passage is giving us a series of lessons on a life together in Jesus Christ. And so if you're in here this morning and you're not a Christian, it's a wonderful text for you to be able to come to, to know what the Christian life is supposed to look like according to the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're a church member, if you're a Christian, this is what you're supposed to be devoting your mind and heart's attention to as you follow Christ as one of his disciples. And especially for those of you in here this morning who are students, there's a series of lessons that Jesus wants you to learn 
and learn them early that you might be a faithful and fruitful disciple of the Lord. So that's the theme then this morning, lessons about life together in Jesus Christ. And I have four lessons from the text. I think Jesus has four simple lessons that he wants to give us. The first is a lesson on tempting. So look, kids, kids, look with me at how verse one begins. Who's Jesus talking to in verse one? You see, Jesus said to his disciples, and it's always necessary, it's vitally important to realize who the original audience that Jesus is speaking to was. Because if you're in here this morning, and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, what you need to understand is that what is soon to come in this passage is not your first responsibility. Uh, Your first responsibility this morning is to come to the Lord Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, turning from your sin and trusting in Him that you might know the freedom of forgiven sin, the promise of eternal life. That's your first responsibility in this text. But if you are indeed a Christian, if you're professing faith in Jesus Christ, these lessons are for you of what it's to be like living together in Christ. And the first lesson is about tempting, because notice what he says, first of all, the certainty of temptation. And verse 1 continues, he says, temptations are sure to come. Temptations are sure to come. And depending on your Bible, you might have a little footnote next to that word, sin. Uh, It's the Greek word from which we get our English word scandal. It more often originally meant the bait stick in a trap. So it paints the picture of sin being something like a snare or a trap, or oftentimes in the New Testament it's used in the language of a stumbling block. And you might think about it this way. Uh, Just as a homeowner might find mice running around in the house and decides to put a bunch of mouse traps around in order to catch them, so too does the Bible tell us that sin, Satan, And the world set a bunch of temptation traps around God's people in order to stumble them, to ensnare them, to entrap them. But the interesting thing about this passage is not so much the certainty of temptation, but the penalty that comes to those who do the tempting. Because the reference here is not to sin, Satan, and the world and its tempting work, but to disciples tempting one another. Because notice how the passage continues in verse 1 through verse 2. Jesus says, Woe to the one through whom they, that being temptations, come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. It's a sober warning and a, a solemn judgment that Jesus means for you to hear disciples of Jesus Christ. Because students, I doubt you have a millstone in the back of your yard, but if you want to kind of get the picture of what Jesus is after here, you need to imagine something of a giant-shaped stone donut that weighs roughly 100 pounds. So heavy is it that only a donkey can turn it in order to grind out the grain that's needed for the food to to make bread. And so what Jesus is saying here is a mafia-style death taking that giant stone donut, leashing it around your neck, and jumping into the sea and enduring a drowning death. That is better than the woe that comes on any disciple who ensnares little followers of Jesus Christ. And even the language here of little ones, it can mean anything from 
really little children. It's, it's the language that Matthew 18 uses, speaking of little children, even infants, but it also can mean young, immature disciples of Jesus Christ. Such woe comes upon those who ensnare little ones, wanting to trust in the Lord Jesus. And those of us in here this morning who are parents, there is a particular usefulness that this warning has for us. Because you surely know, don't you, that so often in our life, in ways we don't realize, we are laying traps before our children, stumbling blocks into sin, not realizing maybe without saying so many words, we have created a pattern in our home that seems to condone a particular sin or make a particular sin look altogether ordinary and not as though it is an offense to God. And kids, what you need to see here too is also that Jesus is very strong. If you're professing your faith in Jesus Christ, he is strongly warning you against leading your friends into sin. It is better for you to go to the bottom of the ocean with a stone around your neck than to lead one of these little ones to sin. To drop dead is better than deceiving any child of God. So there's a certainty of temptation, Jesus says. They're going to come. But his interest in this passage is more on the penalty that comes to those who bring such temptation. So temptation is going to strike, Jesus says. So inevitably, of course, isn't it true that sin will infect any Christian community? So what then are we to do when sin infects the Christian community? Well, that leads to lesson number two, a lesson on Forgiving, for notice what Jesus says and commands in verse 3. Pay attention to yourselves. You could also translate that, take heed, all right? Listen up, is what he says. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Now notice that word, rebuke. The command, if your brother sins, rebuke him. I wonder what thoughts come into your mind when you hear the command to rebuke one another. Maybe you've been at churches in the past that seem to be so zealous to obey this command that all they do is seem to rebuke one another. Maybe even rebuke one another for things that aren't really sins, just matters of personal preference. Or, of course, at the other end of the spectrum, maybe you've been in a church community that is so zealous to love one another according to the world's definition of love, that no one ever gets rebuked for what is very heinous and dangerous sin to the community of faith. Jesus here says, if your brother sins, rebuke them. And don't you know that we are pretty bad at this command? Because think of how we often want this word, this verse to go. If your brother sins, criticize him to another church member. If your sister in Christ sins, gossip about her to another church member. If your brother or sister in Christ sins, write a letter of complaint to the elders. But Jesus says what? Rebuke him. Rebuke her. And of course, on balance in the New Testament teaching, this is only to be done because we love that individual enough to cause them to rebuke, I'm sorry, to cause them to repent of their sin, long for them to repent of their sin. So when he was writing this book, Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer has a section in it that's really quite wonderful on confession. And he says this, applying this text, nothing can be more cruel than the leniency which abandons others to their sin. Nothing can be more cruel 
than the leniency that abandons others to their sin. He says also, nothing can be more compassionate. Understand how countercultural this is, right? Nothing can be more compassionate than the severe reprimand which calls another Christian in one's community back from the path of sin. And how might you even know that your rebuke of a brother or sister in Christ is indeed laced with love? Well, of course, it's what's your goal in the rebuke? Maybe to win the argument? Well, that surely isn't laced with love. To humble a soul? Probably not laced with love. But if it's pursuing repentance that leads to forgiveness and restoration, that's what Jesus is after, isn't he? Because he doesn't just in there rebuke your brother if he sins, and if he repents, forgive him. And notice verse four as Jesus continues on the theme of repentance and forgiveness. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. And notice what Jesus is is telling us about the nature of forgiveness. Two things in particular. One is that forgiveness is conditional. It's something that we've lost in our Christian world today. True forgiveness only comes when there is genuine repentance. Now you might have a heart of forgiveness and forbearance to someone who hasn't repented. Uh, But Jesus says genuine repentance is the condition necessary for full forgiveness to follow. And when that condition is present, notice how unconditional the forgiveness actually really is. It's full, it's free. Because consider the situation he's talking about in verse four. You might even think about it with uh, one of your students at school or maybe your kids at home. They've committed the same sin seven times in a day. And each time said, I repent. And Jesus says, forgive them each and every time. So often, isn't it true that we will see maybe after the third time of committing that sin, say, well, we don't see fruits that are keeping with that repentance. So your repentance must therefore not be genuine. So no forgiveness for you just yet. But Jesus says, I repent, I forgive you. Two hours later, sin in the same way, I repent, I forgive you. What he's trying to paint a picture here of is we are to always forgive when there is genuine repentance. Such is the nature of the church's life together. That there's enough love and affection for one another to rebuke one another when there is sin. To receive the rebuke as love motivated, Christ exalting, and to repent of sin and find forgiveness at the Savior's feet. So I do wonder if there's anyone in your life, maybe even in this church, that needs to be rebuked, that has sinned against you. Or maybe they have repented and you haven't fully forgiven them. Hear Christ's lesson on forgiving. And maybe the reason you haven't forgiven, maybe the reason it's so hard to wash away, to erase that sin from the data of your heart is because it seems so impossible. And if that's your mind, understand you have a faithful friend in the apostles. Because notice what they cry out in verse five as we move to lesson number three, a lesson on believing. The apostles seem to hear Jesus' commands in verses three and four and say, Lord, increase our faith. Uh, We need more faith in order to do what you have just said we must do. And I've thought about this prayer often for a variety of different reasons. Maybe it's because my own prayer life is often saturated with requests for increase and how often my requests for increase sound more like, Lord, increase my abilities Increase my skills, increase my security, my personality, my 
performance and devotion and dedication to you. But how often have you prayed, Lord, increase my faith? For faith, of course, is at the root of all obedience and glory and exaltation of Jesus Christ. A few months ago, Emily and I were watching a movie in which one of the characters belts out this musical number. And you know, it's one of those movies, it's quite clear that the actress is lip-syncing to someone else's voice, uh, singing the song. And it was an overwhelming performance in many ways, and so I was keenly interested to know who actually is singing uh, this song. And when we discovered who sings this song, it was a person who totally went against what I was expecting. Very little and petite in stature, this small little woman belting out this booming vocal number. And isn't it so often true that small things can hide great potential and power? And that seems to be what Jesus is saying here about faith, right? Something small has great power. Look at verse 6. The Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. So kids, if you've ever seen a mustard seed before, it's like the size of a, a grain of sand, a speck of dirt. It's tiny. Jesus loves to use the mustard seed as kind of this indication of something so small that packs all this potential. And I actually don't think what he is saying here is much more than you already have faith. It's not the size of your faith that matters, disciples, because they want more of it, right? He's not saying it's not the size of your faith that matters, it's the exercise of the faith that you do have. And this ought to be an encouragement to you because even small faith, as small as a mustard seed, trusting in the greatest God of the universe can uproot a mulberry tree. I'm not sure if any of you have a mulberry tree in your backyard, but for Jewish rabbis in the first century, mulberry trees were the symbol of strength and stability. They were said to have this tenacious root system that was so strong, so expansive, that the tree would surely lie there in the dirt, standing strong for well over a half of a millennium. So for a little speck of a mustard seed, that small little faith, to say to the mulberry tree, off you go into the ocean for a swim, would have been something altogether impossible in the first century Jewish mindset. But Jesus is saying, even weak faith, clinging to the Savior Jesus Christ, can do amazing things. So he has a lesson, doesn't he, about tempting, a lesson about forgiving, a lesson about believing, and the final lesson is in verses 7 through 10, it's a lesson about obeying, and it's really almost as though Jesus shifts into illustrative mode, he's once again giving a parable of sorts, notice verses 7 through 9, will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So students, do you understand what Jesus is saying here? He's saying that a servant who does what he is commanded is simply doing what he should. There's no reason that that servant ought to expect large expressions of gratitude, celebrations for simple obedience to what he is commanded to do. And notice the application to the disciples, and two words are very important in verse 10. Look what he says as it continues. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy 
servants. It's a good word to underline. You can even do a word study in Luke's gospel about this word unworthy and understand that Christ's view of us is altogether different than how the world wants to view humanity. You know, you can go on some social media platform today and search hashtag worthy, and you will surely come up with all kinds of results that seem to say the world views almost everyone and everything as worthy. But the full teaching of Scripture tells us that we are born into sin, that we are by nature children of wrath, dead in our trespasses, utterly unworthy. There is nothing within us that causes the God of the universe, requires the God of the universe to celebrate anything that we have done. Even the language here in the first century, this idea of a servant who comes back and if a master was to say thank you for a simple act of service, the idea in that context would have been as though the the master is now placed in the debt of the servant. And Jesus is saying there is no such thing possible when it comes to the Lord of the universe and those whom he has created. He can never be in the debt of unworthy servants. So unworthy is key word number one, but look at how he concludes the passage. What we should say is what? We have only done what was our duty. So you can underline that word, duty. In in some circles today, it may be something like a four-letter word that you ought not to emphasize. But Jesus here, what does he do? He emphasizes it. We have only done our duty. So it's, it's speaking against maybe tendencies you could have. We can find prevalent in even churches today that we perform acts of service, always looking around the corner. Who's going to nod in appreciation? Who's going to give me an award of recognition? And even if such appreciation or recognition was to come, Jesus says, you just nod and say, I've simply done what was my duty. I am an unworthy servant. People in the past have told me it's somewhat morbid, and I suppose that it may be, but I I tend to somewhat regularly like to just walk around cemeteries uh, in the area. I think it is useful uh, to remember that we're fleeting here in this life, and and one of the things I like to do as I walk around is, you know, just look at the epitaphs that are on a tombstone. Uh, What a family feels is important to leave as some kind of a legacy for the watching world for decades and maybe even centuries after a loved one has died. And recently I was listening to a very famous preacher whose name, if I told you this morning, is one that so many of you would know. And he was uh, meditating on what he wanted his tombstone to say. And he made some joke about what would be on the front, but then he got serious and said, in all sincerity, on the back, it simply should say, he did his duty for the Lord Jesus Christ, period. So often we're prone to think that our service and acts toward Jesus Christ are much more than just obedience, but they are simply our duty. But what you need to know in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ is not the end of the story. You know, you could turn to other gospel passages where Jesus says a time is coming for his disciples, a time is coming for his followers, when they will hear the master say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. It's a lesson on obeying. So these are lessons on life together in Jesus Christ, a lesson about tempting. It would be better for you to die a drowning death than to lead another into sin. There's a lesson on forgiving. When someone repents, forgive them always, fully, finally, and freely. There's a lesson on believing. Even simple, small faith 
can do amazing things in the hands of God. And there's a lesson on obeying. Our obedience doesn't place God in our debt. It's simply our humble duty before the Lord. Lessons on life together in Jesus Christ. Two weeks ago, I was in a seminary class with Dr. Sinclair Ferguson on preaching. And it was one of those modular, intensive classes that are becoming increasingly common in higher education when students gather for basically a week a week's worth of packed instruction for eight hours a day rather than have it drawn out maybe one hour a week over the course of a semester. And if you've ever sat in a class like that, you know that it's so much of so much instruction comes along the way. It's like if you were going to a Brazilian steakhouse and you take all of this meat and you're so excited about what you're taking in and then once you take it in, you realize it's almost impossible to digest it all. So much is actually there. And it was really the same kind of thing just this one day that I went to Dr. Ferguson's four-day-long intensive seminar. There was so much to understand. There was so much to grasp. There was so much to digest. And in certain ways, I imagine that could be true for some of you, maybe even all of us in here this morning when we come to just 10 simple verses. Because this is something like a modular intensive class on discipleship and the life and ministry of Jesus Christ as we look at these four lessons. And so as we begin to close, what I want to do is just bring out a couple more things that I think are underlying these lessons. Uh, simple realities that are necessary for us to hear if we have ears to hear them. So the number one thing we want to meditate on here at the end is you need to notice once again how prayer is the fuel of discipleship. You can look again at verse 5. It is nothing more than a prayer of the disciples. You can think about the lessons as a whole. Match them to what in Luke chapter 11 Jesus said related to the Lord's prayer. Is it not in prayer that we pray to be kept from temptation? That we pray for the grace to forgive? That we pray for the power to obey God's will on earth as it is in heaven. The vibrancy and vitality of any Christian community is going to rise and fall on its life of prayer together. I wonder how your life of prayer is individually, as a family, for us, even as a church family. Prayer is the fuel of discipleship. What you need to see also, secondly, is that humility is the essence of discipleship. Humility is the essence of discipleship. Because none of these lessons are ever going to be learned and put into practice if pride is the reigning king within our hearts. Think about it kind of adversely the way Jesus talks about it. You're never going to care too much if you're leading someone to stumble into sin if your whole life is fixated on yourself. You're never going to want to extend forgiveness if you have the pride to nurse bitterness and hatred and anger over many years and even maybe decades. You're never going to cry for more faith or even use the faith that you do have if you think you have all the strength needed to do what you need to do. Pride, of course, is always going to want recognition, admiration, celebration, and appreciation for whatever duty you perform for God. But underneath all these things is humility because I think the connection between the third and fourth lesson is this. Jesus says if you exercise your simple faith, you can do amazing things. So simple faith put to good work can do great things. And, of course, those great things have the potential to tempt God's people to pride. Look what we have done with our little faith. So what does he say in the next lesson? Just recognize it's your humble duty in Christ Jesus that you have done anything. Because, of course, it's only by the Spirit's grace and power that you have even gone about that act of obedience. Prayer is the fuel of discipleship. But humility is the essence 
of discipleship as well. And the third thing we need to see here is that Jesus is the teacher of discipleship. So often isn't it true in evangelical churches that we can so exalt in Jesus' work as Savior, as Redeemer, as Mediator, as the atoning sacrifice for our sin, we also forget that he indeed is teacher. He's not just the king who conquers all of our enemies. He's not just the priest who forgives us of our sins. He's also the prophet who tells us how we must live as his people. So you might be in here this morning and you're not a Christian. You need to cling to Jesus Christ to understand how his life even mirrors these lessons. For of course he was tempted in every way and yet never failed. And so when you are tempted, he's able to help you not harm you in the midst of your weakness. He, of course, offers forgiveness of sin by his precious atoning blood shed willingly and lovingly for you at the cross of Calvary. He is the one who is the author and finisher of our faith. He is the one who is the king of eternity that became obedient to the point of death on the cross. He has lived every one of these lessons. So if you cling to him, you can live them too. But exalt this morning that you have a savior that loves you enough to instruct you on how you must live as his people. He instructs you that you must be aware and careful not to tempt others to stumble into sin, to rebuke them when they do, to forgive them when they repent, to use the faith the Spirit has deposited in your heart, and to with humility Follow in obedience the duty that God has placed before you all the days of your life. He has lessons for life together, for us as a church body. May he give us ears to hear them this morning. Let us pray together. Father, we do thank you that Christ is our teacher, that he is our Lord, that he is our King. Uh, We pray for more grace. We pray for more of the Spirit's power that we indeed might be faithful and obedient to everything that he commands of us. Uh, We are thankful that he has sent out his Spirit into our hearts and even into this body, uniting us to Christ that we might be able to walk in faithfulness and fruitfulness. So pray, Lord, that you would convict us this morning of where we need to be convicted on any one of these lessons. And encourage us, we pray, by your kind Spirit to walk this day and newfound grace and trust of Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.